Uh, but I wanted to start by asking a question. How many of you have ever gone to the scriptures for an answer and left frustrated, discouraged, uh, because you couldn't find the answer? Uh, I, know, I know I have uh, on more than one occasion. I specifically remember a time when I was in seminary, uh, the tensions of work and school um, and family seemed to just be ratcheted up during that season. And there was a, a very real tension between my job and school and family, at least a, a felt tension. Uh, and so I felt like, at least, that to honor God with my family and the time that I gave my family, I had to neglect school and work, or vice versa. I felt like to honor God in school and work meant neglecting my family. And so I remember going to the scriptures for an answer I knew wasn't there. I just was hoping somehow to, to find an answer to what is, is there a, a magical number as far as how much time do I give to my family? What is a, a God-honoring work week? Um, and lo and behold, I didn't find the answer. Uh, and many of you probably have a similar uh, case or scenario where you've gone to the scriptures looking for an answer that you didn't find. I remember uh, one of my professors in seminary, he said when he was a, a younger parent, he went to the scriptures earnestly searching for an answer front to back uh, on how to deal with a strong-willed child. And he, he said, I've searched front to back and I've found nothing. And so maybe, maybe it's those things. Maybe it's uh, you've looked for answers regarding the challenges of, of divorce. The Bible has relatively little to say about divorce. Um, maybe it's uh, the difficulties of raising teenagers. Maybe it's 401k or uh, investing in stocks. The Bible doesn't say anything about these things. And so we might be tempted at this point to say, what good is, is the Bible then? If it doesn't answer my most basic questions about life, what good is it? But in reality, we see that the, the Bible points to our most profound need, a Savior who is Christ. It centers on the work of Christ. And so our frustration with the Scriptures often is because we approach them as a, an answer book, me-centered, rather than uh, the Word of God, centered and, pivot, and pivoting on the work of Christ. And so we need to see the Bible through this perspective. And so all that to say, Christ is central to the Scriptures. And so on the one hand, that's so basic and foundational, it's like, why even mention it? But on the other hand, that's exactly why we need to mention it, why we need to be reminded of the centrality of Christ in Scripture. Because if we miss that, we, we miss it all. And so tonight, I want to look at the, the doctrine of Christ briefly. Um, my plan was, uh, theologians often refer to the, the Christ event, uh, a shorthand way to um, look at the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And so I was going to kind of use that as an outline and just from a you know, helicopter view, use that as our points. And I got to the second point. Okay, so got bogged down in, in two. So we're going to look at a few, um, the um, seven acts of the Christ event. So the first two, he was prophesied and he was born. And so uh, as we look at he, he was prophesied, we're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, many of you are familiar with the, the story. Uh, no sooner had Adam and Eve fallen, they've sinned, 
Uh, and then we see a glimpse of hope in verse 15. Let's begin reading in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so when it says your seed, it's referring to Satan and his children, as they're often referred, the followers of Satan are often referred to, uh, specifically in the Gospel of uh, John. And then her seed, referring to Christ, a descendant of Eve, and those in Christ. Okay, so when it says uh, at the end of verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, this points uh, to Christ. He, being Christ, will one day deliver Satan's final blow. And so from the very beginning of Scripture, we can truly say from cover to cover, the, bu- the Bible is Christ-centered. And we see this message of hope from the very beginning. Another passage in the Old Testament that also points to Christ among many is Isaiah 53, verse 6. Let's turn there. And so you can even sooner, starting in verse 3, speaking of Christ, um, in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he was esteemed, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then verse 6, a verse often used in uh, one of the many evangelism methods, evangelism explosion, um, says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So one way, I mentioned evangelism explosion. They use this as an uh, illustration. For example, if this, is, if this is me, and this is Christ, and this is, a, let's say, a record book of every sin I've ever committed. It's probably a lot bigger. Um, but th- this is what stands in the way of us having a relationship with Christ. Our sin stands in the way. And so Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep, it says, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so again, one passage among many that point to Christ. That's who it's referring to here. But even though the Old Testament look, looks ahead to Christ, we also don't need to misunderstand that Christ has always uh, been. Okay, Although the, the Old Testament looks ahead to Jesus of Nazareth, uh, we shouldn't uh, obscure the fact that Christ has existed long before Jesus of Nazareth, okay? And we're going to see that again in just a minute. Um, and so it wasn't until later that he would take on flesh. And that brings us to the second act of the Christ event. He was born. Um, and here we're going to look at the incarnation. Does any, can anybody, um, so that we're all on the same page, what are we talking about with the, the incarnation? What is that? Yeah, God becoming man literally means enfleshment, God in, in the flesh. Um, and so this is a question, if you're familiar with um, ecumenical councils in the 3rd, 4th century at all, they were often 
debated over this very issue uh, where they would come together, bishops, try and reach a consensus for really all of Christendom. Um, and in the 4th century, I believe it was, this was one of the biggest issues, the incarnation. Was God fully man um, or was he uh, 60% God and 40% man or vice versa? Um, did he lay aside essential divine attributes to take on humanity? Uh, and so it's something that, that the church has wrestled with. And we're going to uh, see what the Bible says in, in John chapter 1. This is one of the more popular passages regarding the incarnation. find it in a minute. John chapter 1, verse 4. Let's actually go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So again, as we mentioned, this speaks to the eternality of, of Christ, has always been. And if you jump down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and and truth, and so again, God became flesh. Uh, and so the question, if, as we think about the the church, as uh, centuries of people have have debated over this, we would say this is really foundational to the Christian faith. Um, and so many might ask the question, though, can we not just agree to disagree on the, the issue of the incarnation? Um, and in First John four two, you don't have to turn there. We see that it's really not something uh, we can just agree to disagree on. This is uh, of extreme importance. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 says that by this you know this, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so if one must believe that Jesus uh, is God... To not is the the spirit of the Antichrist. And so we would say that this is extremely important uh, for us as Christians. And this this passage, among many others, uh, again and again, speak about the the incarnation. We could could look at Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter chapter 1, that amplify really what we see in in John chapter 1 verse 14, that God became flesh. And so how do we understand the incarnation? Uh, as we look at Scripture, we see on the one hand, there was things that um, Jesus did that were beyond the ability of a, a mere man. We look to his, his miracles, supernatural knowledge, um, forgiving sin. And yet, on the other hand, he experienced things that wouldn't have happened to uh, someone that was truly God. We, might, we think about uh, he became tired, he was hungry, tempted, uh, he grew in wisdom, asked questions to which he didn't know the answer to. Um, Hebrews 4.15 uh, tells us that our Redeemer had to be like us, tempted as we are, and so, but without sin. So he became like us. We see in this passage his humanity. In, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, again, we see his humanity. It says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And yet, 
other passages, like Colossians 1.19, says that in him all the fullness of God dwelt, was pleased to dwell. And so this was a specific um, address to a Colossian heresy, which uh, believed that deity was kind of was spread out. It didn't dwell in one being, uh, but so Christ had a, a portion of deity in him, but he wasn't full deity. And Paul addresses this clearly in verse 19. It says, in him all the fullness of deity dwelt. And so in short, we can say that Christ was both God and man. Okay, so we know for one that Christ, he didn't lay aside any essential divine attributes. Uh, he took on, yet he took on flesh. He did not cease to be God though. Okay, so one way this is often thought about is that he, he chose not to exercise his divine attributes at times in order to identify with us. So we might say that his deity was, was veiled, it was, it was restricted. And so there was definitely a, a self-emptying involved, a humiliation, a loss of position. Um, he took on flesh, but he did not lose any uh, essential divine attributes. All that to say Christ was fully God and fully man. J.I. Packer says that some people have the wrong problem with Christianity. He says we should not really stumble over the Good Friday miracle of crucifixion or even the Easter Sunday miracle of the resurrection. Rather, he says the greatest miracle of all is the Christmas miracle of the incarnation. If that miracle is true, then all the others make sense. If God truly was incarnate in Jesus Christ, then of course his death would have tremendous saving significance, and of course his resurrection would be expected. And so the incarnation certainly is an awesome miracle, um, the question I want to ask now is, what are some ways that the incarnation matters for us today? Okay, so we've said that he, Christ is fully God and fully man. Um, and why does that matter for us today? Yeah. Yeah, um, we, we can identify. He can identify with us. Um, what else? Yeah, yeah. If the incarnation is true, like J. I. Packer says, we shouldn't have problem believing um, the, uh, the resurrection or any of the other miracles. If, yeah, and we would say that the incarnation is even essential for salvation. It was essential that um, Christ become man for the purpose so that he could die for us. He took upon himself our sin. Um, so. On the one hand, we can say it's essential. The incarnation is essential for our salvation. Uh, but then, as, as Lee mentioned, um, he, Christ identifies with us. And this is an awesome comfort, I believe. John Hammett says that the incarnation was the greatest act of identification the world has ever known. Um, and so, in, the sen in that sense... He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows our life, our difficulties, our, our pains, our suffering. He, he identifies with us. And I, I, I know, at least for me, that's an awesome comfort. Even I think about the, the group that we have here tonight, the prayer requests mentioned, the things that weren't mentioned, the weighty things that each of you are dealing with, or anxieties or problems um, that each of you have. 
to think that our God, the God of the universe, identifies with you. Um, he, he walked the earth as a perfect man, took on flesh. John Stott says that I could not believe in God if the cross did not exist. In this world of pain, how could we worship a God who was immune to pain? Even now, in his ascended state, we need to remember that he has taken back to the Trinity uh, this identification, his, his humanity, glorified humanity. So he still identifies with us today. And this should bring us comfort. I think a lot of times we, we think about God in the sense that he is otherworldly, unapproachable, distant, distinct, uh, set apart, and he is those things. But we forget that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we shouldn't re- forget that he identifies with our weaknesses, our struggles, all of these things. And we can go to him in that way. I wanted to, to mention a few more application points before we close. And one is for the church, we would do well to remember that Christ is the center of the church's faith. And so again, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is basic, foundational to the Christian faith. Almost to the point, we might question why mention it, and that's exactly why we should be reminded of it again and again and again. Because to lose this is to just aimlessly toil. Um, we, we do ministry in vain if we lose this. Christ is central to the Scripture. He's central to everything that we're doing here tonight. He's central to the, the children that are meeting downstairs and the youth that are meeting. We meet for this purpose. Uh, to honor and glorify Christ. And so for the and then for the, the world, as we think about evangelism, we think uh, the incarnation has a lot to uh, is a huge motivation for evangelism. Again, uh, John Hammett, a professor of mine, he says that the strongest motivation for evangelism I lost it. Evangelism is not the, the lost condition of humanity, but the worthiness of of Christ. And he certainly is worthy. So in that sense, what he means is that Jesus is worthy of the worship of every heart. As we look at Christ, I think we we're reminded of his worthiness. We're reminded that he certainly is worthy of the worship of every heart. And so on in that sense, we we go to the world. We go to the world in the way that, that Christ did. In Matthew 9, he says that he looked on the crowd in compassion. Um, what is our posture towards the world? It's certainly not one of hatred or shouldn't be, of, or bitterness or pride or arrogance. Especially in the time that we're in now as tensions seem to be ratcheted up and division is ratcheted up. We need to, to look to Christ who looked upon the crowd and felt compassion. That should be our approach. It, it shouldn't be one of bitterness or from a, a, a pedestal looking down. Uh, but we should remember, as in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, the beginning part of uh, verse 1 through 3, I believe it is, talks about uh, our position before, before Christ. We were dead. Um, essentially says that we were following after the prince of the, the power of the air, Satan. We were Satan worshipers. Just like everyone else, uh, as we look at, at the world, uh, we sh- so we can't look at them from a point of um, arrogance, but recognizing that they're where we were at one point. And we go to them, recognizing that Christ is worthy 
of the worship of every heart. Okay, so we too should uh, look at the world with compassion, go to the world in our circles of influence at work. Uh, let's, let's remember the worthiness of Christ. Let's pray this week that, that God would stir our affections for Christ. If we lose this most foundational element of, of obedience, then we, we lose a lot. Um, and so as I pray often, uh, try to, to make a habit of, of praying, stir my affections for you. Even, Lord, help me love you uh, the way that you have called me to in the scriptures. Help me to uh, obey your word. Most, one of the most basic elements of Christianity. Just do what I've told you to do. And so, Lord, give me a desire for you. Stir my affections for you. So let's let that be our prayer this week. I'm going to stop here. Does anybody have anything to add or comments? All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're grateful for Christ. Uh, so often, Lord, we take um, Christ for granted that he became flesh, uh, took on sin for us. And so, Lord, tonight we just simply pray that you would stir our affections for you in a fresh way, that as a church, everything that we do would be centered around uh, the person and work of Christ, that you would align us more and more with uh, the purposes and plans of Christ that you would use us in a mighty way, that we wouldn't toil and labor and minister in vain, but that we would be about your work. Lord, I pray for, for each one here tonight, Lord, who may even carry their own anxieties and um, struggles and, and things that they're dealing with. Lord, I pray that you would remind them afresh and anew that um, you identify with us that you care for us, that you sympathize with our weaknesses and our, our needs. What an awesome comfort that is. And so we praise you uh, tonight. Thank you for your goodness. And just ask that we would honor, help us to honor you in all that we do this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.